Jenny and I have been blessed. We've got two children that... No, you we were not proposing. I'm sorry, you, you we were were. It was our policy. You were not... Below the Line, Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Why would you take China's side? Well, that, that's an outrageous slur. Welcome to Below the Line, a 2022 federal election podcast special. From polls to party spin to policies, our podcast is trying to break free of party, media and populist lines. It's brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. I'm John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne after 30 years at the ABC. I've dusted off my microphone and I'm joined each week by professors of polls, parties and press. Annika Gallia, Simon Jackman, both from the University of Sydney, and Andrea Carson from La Trobe. And we try to cut through the election noise with new episodes twice a week if we can manage it. And we'll unpack the election issues that matter most to you. I'm blessed this week to be joined by these three experts. In fact, we're all blessed this week, except Anthony Albanese. Let's start perhaps with you, Annika. He's got COVID. Is this a positive or a negative for the Labor Party if other people have to step up? Maybe they'll do better if we don't hear from Albo for a few days. What do you reckon? <laughs> Look, I think we've all, as a population, learnt to be accustomed to, to COVID and all the challenges that COVID bring. So we're all working from home. We're all podcasting from home these days as well. I'm going to say it's neither positive nor negative. I'm going to say it's neutral, John. It's not a not a great answer, not always looking for division in everything that we do, because I think that he can transition to running elements of the campaign online, and I think it does present a pretty good opportunity for Labor to showcase some more of their shadow front bench to the electorate. Professor of Polls, Simon, are there examples of other election campaigns interrupted by illness or disaster for the individual leader who's sort of dipping out somewhere midway? I think everybody, when they heard that Albo had been um, had tested positive back to Biden in 2020, who in the end successfully, as it turns out, ran his campaign for president, a big chunk of it at least, from a basement in Wilmington, Delaware. That said, it's going to create some risk as I think we're going to need other characters to step up and take a bigger role in some of the big... You know, we've got Anzac Day weekend coming up. Ordinarily, the, the tightly scripted uh, event that a leader of the opposition in an election campaign would do there. Now that's going to fall to other other people. Just those moments are those that supporting cast of characters are ready to go from, say, a, a 5 out of 10 to a 7 or 8 out of 10 in terms of visibility and performance expectations. So it can be done from the media point of view, Professor Carso, Professor Press. Uh, we've seen a more presidential-style campaign every election for as long as I can remember, and this one doesn't disappoint. How does the Labor Party pivot to feature some of its second rank rather than just the leader? So, John, I've put on my um, campaign strategist hat to answer this question and have done a SWOT analysis, which is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. And if you look at the strengths, you've already got um, candidates, ministers or shadow ministers like Tanya Plibersek um, doing very well online with the campaign. She is, according to the Facebook data I've been looking at, really outperforming in terms of her posts. And you've got others like Jed Carney who are doing very well online. So they will continue to do that. Jed Carney? She's not even a front bencher. What's Jed Carney doing that's attracting so much attention for someone who's not even one of the, the core leadership team? She's got a disabled sister 
and she's put a post up about how blessed she is to have a disabled sister and uh, has invited Scott Morrison to acknowledge how blessed she is and the public love it. So that's gaining traction well above elevating her above the fray. I mean, this raises a really interesting issue. After the debate, which I just need to quickly whip around and ask you how significant you think it turned out to be, one of the things that astonishes me, for more than 20 years I was covering elections for the ABC in Melbourne from our our Melbourne studios, Every election, we would have debates between ministers and shadow ministers, whoever was in power. And it was a chance for the shadow minister to have a go, for the minister to show how well they were across their portfolio. Health, immigration, environment, defence, you name it, we would put them on. There's no sign of that this election. What on earth is going on? Why, why is there no opportunity for the public to hear the different perspectives and to test the credentials of the candidates. And have we seen such a controlled election before? I mean, there's two things that could feed into it. I mean, this could be to do very much with the changing nature of campaigning, um, as Andrew and Simon can elaborate on a little bit more, or it could be a lack of talent, either or. Um, But, I mean, look, I think that as we get into talking about the debate, the viewing audience for the, the debate isn't particularly high, right? So what would be, for political parties, the point of hosting numerous debates and putting their their front bench at, at risk of scrutiny and retaliation when the payoff in terms of viewing numbers isn't great at all? So from a strategic perspective, does it really make sense? Can we aggregate the numbers, Carso? Have you been able to crunch the, the figures to find out how many people watched? Yeah, John. So we know from the debate on Wednesday night that was televised, or it was behind the paywall of Foxtel, 416,000 people viewed it across three different platforms. Um, About 100,000 viewed it on the free-to-air regional network, which is the highest audience that network has ever had in its history. Its history's short, though. It's only been around two years. And 100,000 watched it, a bit more than that, on the news.com internet platform. So all up 400,000, which is a reasonable size when you, it's 84% up on what we saw in 2019 with Bill Shorten when he went on News Corp up against Scott Morrison. So it, it's high, but it's not high compared to, say, uh, The Voice, which got 850,000 viewers when it was competing at the same time. Yeah, but... I mean, you know, it's not right to compare an apple to an orange. It's better to compare an apple to an apple. Simon, these are staple parts of the diet in any other jurisdiction. Why has Australia been so reluctant to embrace en masse political debate, do you think? I'm not sure um, that Australia actually does lag a little. Last time we spoke about the institutionalisation of American presidential debates, there's still plenty of argy-bargy about format and timing of those things, though. I'd be very interested, though, to hear, Andrea, on why it is that your observation, John, about the, the lack of ministers coming forward to debate their counterparts, why that st- formally a staple of Australian campaigns is, is perhaps less prominent um, than it has been in the past. Well, I'll take up that invitation, and Annika's already touched on this, and that is looking at the risk adverse. They don't have to go on 
the ABC anymore. And so they say no to it. They can go directly to the voters, the audience are trying to reach through social media. And they are doing that. If you have a look at the types of messages they're putting out both in the free space and the paid space online, the political parties are all over it, whether it's Instagram or Facebook. So they don't need to have a pesky John Fain or a counterpart putting them through the ropes about where their policy costings are and all those sorts of things. They are looking for that unmediated space. Well, I think Frydenberg and Chalmers are debating at the press club next week after Anzac Day. I mean, I remember hosting a debate for the Law Institute or the Law Council or somebody, I can't remember who put it on, but I was the MC for a debate between George Brandis and Mark Dreyfus an election or two ago. I mean, they were just part of the staple diet of preparing stakeholders, the electorate, testing your ideas and, you know, making sure people understood what was going on. But it reminds me of, I mean, I keep referring back to Kennett in 99, because I think this Liberal campaign is mirroring that. No one's allowed to say anything. I mean, mind you, there are so many accident-prone people on the front bench of the Morrison government. Mm -hmm. You can understand you wouldn't put Richard Colbeck up to debate on aged care policy. Well, Macalia Cash has said outright that she won't do any debates. Yeah, she won't do it. So I don't know. Uh, let's get to the media coverage. And I, I don't think we quite heard from everybody on your response to the leaders' debates. Simon, did you did you score it? Did you mark it? Did you measure it? I was surprised in two, maybe two and a half ways. One is the audience size, bigger than I thought it would be. Two was the quality, the substance. So it was actually a format that kind of worked, taking the questions from what looked like ordinary Queenslanders. That format did surpass my expectations as to often how the, how those things go. And I marginally scored it for Albo, given he'd come coming off a, a bit of a shocker. He had a stronger performance, you know, a bit rusty, a uh, few moments where he got into a bit of a bit of trouble. But generally, put it this way, didn't go backwards anymore and might have gone a tiny bit forward on the back of that debate. So for Albo not to make a mistake was regarded as a win. It's not saying much, is it? No, no. In my view, given just given how disastrous that opening 12 hours of the campaign was, what is it, two weeks ago now, the debate needed to be reassuring, put it that way. And, and, and I think it was that. And it also struck me when I heard all the media kerfuffle in the last 24 hours about Albo having COVID, um, he'd rather get it now than in another two or three weeks, wouldn't he? So if he's going to get COVID, get it over and done with, knock yourself out over the Easter long week, Easter and Anzac Day break, uh, and then hopefully without any you know long tail or any other side effects, it's done and dusted. Isn't that another way to look at it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, painting a, an optimistic picture of it, but you know we've got the Anzac Day long weekend come up coming up, so that will involve obviously, as, as we've said, a sort of a set piece campaign event around that, which you could easily delegate to to anybody else in the in the campaign team. And you know, I won't be surprised if we see Albo cropping up now on more mainstream media appearances from his uh, presume it would be his Marrickville household. So look, I think the timing has been excellent for that. I think that one thing for me in that debate that was particularly interesting, so what, 400,000 people watched it. So I was one of the remaining 16.8 million voters that didn't watch it. People enrolled to vote in this election. So that's the sort of scale that we're looking at, 400,000 versus 17.2 million, which is the total voting population. 
Sure, but there's a lot of reporting afterwards, secondary reporting, and people catch up on it. I mean, I was out for dinner, I'll admit, I didn't watch it live, I was out for dinner, but I caught up with the highlights later on, like many other people who follow politics would have. If you ask me, you ask me the day after what the key takeaway was, it was Scott Morrison being blessed. Jenny and I have been blessed. We've got two children that don't, haven't had to go through that. And so for parents with children who are disabled, I can only try and understand that's it. The one piece of information that was relayed through the mainstream media accounts of it. I think that's particularly interesting, given that Albo did really start making some policy announcements in that debate around, you know, reiterating aged care. The Integrity Commission was a, a key aspect of that debate as well, um, as was the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Which clearly became an issue. So, Professor of Press Casso, how come so many of the newspapers and what we call now legacy media, old-style print and the like, couldn't acknowledge or not readily acknowledge that the audience in place, the live people in the room, scored it as a win for Albo, albeit narrowly, but a clear win, and it was reported as if he'd somehow either drawn or in some newspapers even lost? What's all that about? So we can cut to the chase when we're talking about some newspapers. We're talking about East Coast tabloids that are owned by News Corp, which really focused on what they thought were the mistakes that Albanese had made during that debate. And there was an awkward moment where he got a little confused about his own position on boat turnbacks, which Scott Morrison very proudly told the audience he was the architect of that policy. You weren't proposing no, back we, then. No, you we were, were not proposing. I'm sorry, you, you we were were not it was our policy. You were not Turnbacks were our policy before you, you the 2013 not. election. I was the shadow immigration minister. I designed the policy. So I'm, you were on the National Security Committee, I think for the first time at that time. And so why did you not support Turnbacks? I was on the National Security Committee. We had established offshore processing yeah. just just at the, in 2013, when I became Deputy Prime Minister. That was the first step. That was the first step. So you were going to do turnbacks? No. No, that's right. So, So that was a bit of a clumsy moment. And as you say, John, those tabloids really honed in, and the Australian as well, on that mistake and have made that their front page headline. But if you look at the other media coverage of it, and especially if you look at the online coverage with Dylan Alcott, the Grand Slam, Golden Grand Slam tennis star, who said that he felt very blessed to be disabled and picked up on that point that Annika's just made, you've got to weigh up the way the audience, the voters are seeing that debate. And Scott Morrison lost a whole day of his campaigning apologising effectively and having to clarify his words and to say how he didn't mean offence. But you're right, John, we're seeing a section of the media that are determined to have a negative and unsympathetic coverage of the ALP and of Anthony Albanese. Simon, we've seen this before. It's not a novelty, but it strikes me this is there's a lack of leadership in a lot of the political commentary. I mean, in the old days, you sort of had Michelle Grattan or Laurie Oakes, they'd set the tone and everyone would fall into line and go, yep, they're the gurus, they know what's going on. doesn't seem there's anyone doing that anymore other than maybe Laura Tingle on 7.30 every night. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a bad thing, by the way. The idea that, you know, I think we've left that age behind where the distinguished elder of the um, press gallery or elders would um, would you know, give us the narrative uh, for the for the day. I'm, I'm not sure that's 
entirely healthy. But I just keep coming back to Andrea's observation, this ability for social media, which Trump used on Twitter, and, and why is Trump's brand on the wane? Because he's he's been deplatformed um, and can't really establish a new one. But you look at what's been happening in the campaign away from mainstream media, it actually blew back into mainstream media. Morrison had to spend that day backpedaling and apologizing, largely because it erupted. Uh, he got the blowback in, in social media uh, is where a lot of that started. Um, some of the other side stories that are really energizing voters, at least as revealed by their social media interactions, are entirely sort of social media creations. There's this, um, the, the cashless card back and forth that's largely uh, happening in, in social media with mainstream media effectively being spectators or commentators on that back and forth over there. So I think we're just in this, um, you know, disintermediated uh, in, environment these days. And and look, I'm not saying that's a, that's a great thing either, but I'm not so sure that the the golden days of Laurie Oakes telling me what to think every night was was a great thing for democracy either. I guess it was more subtle than that, Annika. I kind of thought it was more that they would set the tone. And a lot of the media, I mean, I don't want to be too rude about this, but there's a lot of lemmings in the press gallery, a lot of people who look for someone else to have an idea and then everybody follows. And that leadership, I guess, is what I'm talking about. Not so much telling... I mean, Alan Jones' style was tell you what to think. Laurie Oakes' style was more here is what I say is the big issue. Now everyone else will focus on it too. Do you think it's absent this time around? What I'm, what I'm really seeing, I suppose, is leadership when it comes to policy critique and policy reporting. Um, I mean, my observations of the media coverage of the ca- campaign so far is, is it's been really, you know, reduced to sporting metaphors about winners and losers and about reporters trying to find gotcha moments and reporting gaffes where the with a real absence of any sort of sustained critique of of party policy now whether that's the fault of the media or whether it's the fault of the political parties in being very i suppose reluctant to clearly communicate policy messages is a is an open question i mean i always compare australian political parties in their real lack of having a clear manifesto coming into elections, it actually makes them really distinctive. If we look at, at parties all throughout Europe, you know, our main counterparts, the Conservatives and Labor in the UK, release very detailed policy manifestos as part of their election campaign. In Australia, we have some, you know, shotgun announcements by leaders that punctuate the four, five, six weeks of our campaign. That makes us very unusual and also a hostile environment for that sort of policy debating. All right. So, Carso, just on the media, given this is your portfolio, uh, do you notice a lack of direction with the way the media are covering it? And uh, there's a bit of an elbowing to see who can emerge to fill what I think is a bit of a, a leadership void. Yes, I do see that, John. I think the biggest problem is that the media is there to serve the audience. And in an election campaign, that's the voter. And Annika makes a really important point, and that is because we don't have those really detailed policy manifestos, it's up to the media to bring that information to really tease it out of the political parties and to scrutinise it to serve their audience. What we're seeing instead is too often the media serving their proprietors or their bosses or serving each other. And that's a real misservice to the public where we're not getting that level of scrutiny. Instead, as has already been pointed out, we're getting a focus on personality, on 
a very presidential style campaign on particular traits of personality and we're getting a focus on this who's ahead in the contest which is really really superficial coverage now there are some exceptions and I'll point to the conversation which is doing a hashtag set the agenda campaign which is asking the public what sort of issues they want stories on I think that's really important another one is the ABC with vote compass where they've already surveyed, I think, 100,000 Australians to be able to see what the public want to hear about, what are the most important issues to them. A A subset of the public. A subset, exactly. Sorry, I should say that. But at least they're reaching out to serving that audience and hearing from the other end of the equation rather than just the drip feed from the politicians and the very, very staged campaign. So there's an arm wrestle between the parties who try to set the agenda and the media, which should be saying, no, we're not following your directions. We will decide based on our knowledge, our familiarity with our audience, what it is they want. But then if you can't get the minister or the shadow minister, if they just point blank refuse, you're left with the empty chair. And after a while, I can tell you from firsthand experience, it becomes rather tedious. Uh, Yeah, but John... You and I both know there's always lots of ways to skin a cat. You can go to the head of the business council. You can go to other bodies that are involved in that policy area. Have the debate if without the minister if they're not prepared to come on. I think we might get to the point where the media's frustration does erupt. Watch this space. I predict it'll happen in the, in the last two weeks or so of the campaign. There's a really important issue we just have to lock horns with. Simon, the um, uh, decision by the Solomon Islands to enter into a treaty relationship with China has led to a vigorous debate between the Labor Party and the coalition over whose fault it is. How do you see this? How do you see it impacting on the election campaign, if at all? Working backwards, in the context of a campaign, the announcement manifestly profoundly unhelpful for a government that was seeking, is seeking, to use national security as one of its two arguments for re-election, the other being uh, economic management. It has neutralised that at least for a while. And the Australian newspaper this morning furiously counterpunching with its headline about Richard Miles and some comments he made in a speech uh, a few years ago that A, have been widely known to people in the community, in the strategic affairs community, and, and B, frankly, aren't that different from, frankly, some of the things that Maurice Payne uh, was saying about at the end of the day, it being a sovereign decision for the Solomons. On the substance of this, though, John, it's not. I think Penny Wong um, was on a unity ticket with Greg Sheridan that this was a really bad outcome for Australia. And I don't think there's any other way to describe it, that this is one of the poorest results in Australian foreign policy and strategic affairs since World War II. There is no direct, immediate or imminent kinetic military threat to Australia. But this is the scenario that strategic affairs experts and defence planners have been talking about for decades. This has been a long, long time in the making. And the idea that we've known that something like this might be coming, not for six months, not for six years, but for 15 to 20 years, people have been thinking that this might be on the horizon. The idea that Australian diplomacy could not stop this outcome, um, I think, is is extremely disappointing. And I hate to use the word wake-up call because it's not a wake-up call. Like I said, it's been there staring us in the face for decades. I think it's just, a re- you know, frankly, a reminder of sort of our impotency um, and, and that we've still got so far to go in terms of 
matching our abilities and capacities as, as a middle power in the region to our aspirations uh, and, and what it is both sides of Australian politics see as being in the national interest. And it also reminds us how important it is then to reinvigorate the relationship with PNG. I go back to, and this is my ABC background, but the gutting of Radio Australia, which was soft power projection into particularly the Pacific, where it was a lifeline for in particular the absolutely the intelligentsia and the bourgeoisie in those countries to connect back to Australia, send their kids to Australia for education, to have Australia as their best friend. And we've trashed all that in the last decade and this is the dividend you reap you've got it john from making that disinvestment john you're absolutely correct in that australia's policy has been reactive and very much through a defense and security lens the west knows how to do this we did it extremely well from in the 50s 60s 70s into the 80s um where we had that full court press with respect whole of society that uh, civil society engagement and in, in particular John the way you were describing the relationships with the up-and-comers in those societies their jurists their cops their military and political leaders were all educated uh, or all had the option of being educated in Australia in New Zealand in the US in the UK and the sporting connections the cultural connections um, what it really means when Morrison says uh, they're part of our Pacific family, well, I don't know that our Pacific family quite see it the same way. And I think the decision in the Solomons is an example of, you know, I think that neglect or that different way we've approached those relationships are the way I think we actually handled them much better in, in decades now, alas, long past. Well, who knows after Anzac Day where we'll be. We'll reconvene next Tuesday, but for now... This is the latest edition of Below the Line, presented by me, a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne, John Fain, with Professors Annika Gaia and Simon Jackman at the University of Sydney, Associate Professor Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy Michelle Grattan's interviews with political players and experts, also presented by The Conversation Australia. To listen and subscribe, search Politics with Michelle Grattan on The Conversation Australia or your favourite podcast app. Our producers are Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark. Look forward to joining you again after Anzac Day. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. To get more information or to get in contact, please see the episode notes. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.